Hey, I'm Bailey. I'm Michael. And welcome back to the Face in the Gates podcast. Um, David is not here again. But for realsies this what, time. What do you know? He is uh, He's actually not here because he got his second COVID shot and it gave him coronavirus. So don't get your COVID <laughs> shot. No, get your COVID shot. But yeah. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, prepare we, for the side effects. Yeah, yeah. So he's he's a little knocked out. But uh, today we're interviewing uh, Pastor Trent Still of Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm proud of myself for getting my information correct because last <laughs> week I messed that up. Uh, so yeah, how are, how are you? I'm well, thank you. I'm glad to be here with you guys. Excited cool. to do this interview. Yeah, thank you for doing it for us. Um, so I guess kind of starting out, give us a little bit of your background, who you are, and like how you became a pastor. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm Trent Still. Uh, born and raised in this area from Williston, South Carolina, about 30 minutes from where we are here at the church. Um, was raised in Christian family. Uh, knew the Lord from an early age. Went off to college at uh, Anderson, played baseball, uh, went to New Spring Church. Ever heard of it? I have. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the main campus, right, in Anderson, when uh, the notorious pastor that started it was still there, but now he's gone. And um, yeah, so went through that, through college, uh, knew the Lord, was not living a faithful life. Um, but um, towards the end of my college experience, I met uh, the gal who would become my wife, got involved uh, with her church, helping with the youth group that she was graduating from, and uh, became really good friends with the youth pastor there, and still a good friend of mine. Um, but he really began to disciple me, he and a few other guys, and um, it was kind of like a perfect storm all that was happening my senior year was happening in college and I got hurt playing baseball and um, after I had surgery I was you know obviously unable to do anything with ball so I was sitting on my behind a lot I needed crutches so I was very uh, immobile mm-hmm. and I was able to uh, think about my life and the future in a way that I had not slowed down long enough to do. And through all that, getting involved with that youth group, we went on a summer trip with them, and uh, the Lord called me to the ministry uh, while we were on that summer trip. Um, It was an insane experience. Uh, (laughs) Not a Pentecostal by any stretch of the imagination, but Mm -hmm. uh, I was overcome uh, that evening whenever we were talking as as leaders and it was just impressed upon me that in the Lord's providence and working out of things that baseball was over and that God was changing my affections and that I was being directed towards uh, the ministry and ever since then that's that's what I've wanted to do and uh, before that time I didn't didn't have an interest yeah, in that it was that's it was wild yeah yeah so then we uh, just kind of tell you how we got here um Let's see, uh, that's 2010. Uh, I start seminary shortly thereafter. I uh, go to a couple different churches. Uh, was still Southern Baptist at the time, mm-hmm. but we end up becoming Presbyterian in 2012, and we joined this church that fall, mm-hmm. and we've been here ever since. They, they paid my way through seminary and all that good stuff. So, yeah. I guess as a sub-question to that is, because um, we were speaking with uh, a Baptist pastor mm-hmm. last time, um, what made the 
what made you want to make the transition from Baptist to Presbyterian? Oh, wow. Um, or is that a big No, hole? no, it's, it's <laughs> fine. I, I mean, I could answer that a bunch of different ways. Uh, but with that uh, discipleship process that I really embraced in 2010 and studying the Bible in a way that I never had and began reading books and listening to sermons that by guys I'd never heard of and uh, kind of like what we were talking about before the podcast, becoming a little bit more informed about church history, mm-hmm. um, I was like, wow, the Baptist way is very modern, right? So I was like, well, maybe they're not right, but it didn't really make me Presbyterian overnight. Right. Um, but I knew that a lot of the ministers uh, that I was listening to in books I was reading, uh, I had been exposed to John Calvin in that time, I was like, well, John Calvin's not a Baptist. He baptized infants. What's up with that? Mm-hmm. So I began to study it through writers like him, not just him, um, and uh, looking at the scriptures. And the big thing was not um, that I could go to the Bible and say, look, there's the baptism of a child. But the whole flow of scripture to me uh, shows that God includes families in his church mm-hmm. from the beginning. And those who are included that can receive the sign of being a member of the church receive it from birth. Now, you have circumcision in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Obviously, a girl can't receive circumcision. Right. right? So, But the males could mm-hmm. when they were eight days old. They were all circumcised. Uh, when God made the covenant with Abraham in Genesis, he said, this is the covenant. And he pointed to or spoke of circumcision there. Um, he literally called the act itself the covenant, uh, the relationship. And that is referred to over and over again throughout the Old Testament. And then in Colossians 2, you have baptism being called the circumcision of Christ. And based on that and other things in the New Testament, with the continued inclusion of the family, like you read the pastoral epistles, and God doesn't just address, or we could say Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, doesn't just address adults, masters, and slaves. He addresses children. Well, what if all the children are in children's church, right? What does that say about, one, how you approach Scripture, but two, how God views your children? Mm-hmm. First Corinthians 7, God calls the children of even one believer holy. So all of that, you know, we could go on, but for the sake of brevity, like it just revealed that God works through families and includes families mm-hmm. in covenant with him. That covenant has a sign and it's applied from the earliest age possible. Gotcha. And one of the ways that the new covenant is better than the old is that the girls can also receive the sign. You don't have to be a specific gender to be baptized. Right. Right. So they can receive the sign too. Very and cool. we baptize the um, children of believers, right. Right? not just children in general, right. but those who have their family in covenant with God, their children have a right to baptism via their birth into a Christian home. All right. So, yeah. Um, so one of the episodes we we recorded before we started this, uh, series of episodes where we're interviewing pastors and going to their churches, um, was why go to church? Mm -hmm. Um, because we've kind of talked in previous episodes, like if you, if you know all this stuff and you believe, uh, essentially what Christianity teaches, where's the place of the church and why should you go to church? Mm -hmm. What is kind of the point of that in your, in your perspective? Yeah. Well, first, um, I want to explain or want, well, I have a question, I guess. When you say church, mm-hmm. what do you mean? 
Oh yeah, we we talked about that too. We yeah. talked about oh, ecclesiology. Um, so no, well, not even that, but like when you say, "Why do you go to church?" Some people say, "Well, I go to the Bible study on Wednesday night." Some people say, "You know, I go to Sunday school and then I help with the children's nursery, but I don't ever get to go to worship." Why be involved with a church is probably the better question. Okay, all right. Um, in a generic fashion, you should be involved with the church because the church is the family and household of God, Ephesians 2. If you say you are a child of God, you, by implication, must be involved in his household. Mm-hmm. Um, I, would, I think it would be better to frame the question and probably more biblical to say, why worship? Right? Because that's the point of church. Church is not ultimately about fellowship or programs, as we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. but it's about being brought to God. So I have a, you know, a couple things in mind, uh, if you don't mind. Yeah, that's yeah. Fine. So why go to church? First, we could say that God has made all things for his glory, right? for his own joy and delight. Uh, you know, there's the debate in church history why God created and all. Was he bound to do so? Uh, was he free? Uh, I would say that he was certainly free. And I think you could read in writers like St. Augustine that it's the overflow of God's love mm-hmm. that caused him to create. Yeah, that's uh, kind of where I've fallen. Yeah, yeah. He wasn't bound to, but he chose to. He was free. Um, but the worship of the church is chiefly about the glory of God. Right? In worship, uh, the Bible teaches that God promises to meet with his people in a way that he doesn't promise anywhere else. So why go to church? One, you could say, because God is there in a way that he's not everywhere else. Right? Uh, Psalm 100, verse 2 says, Come into his gates with thanksgiving. Well, you might say, well, God, you're everywhere. Where are your gates? Right. It's your church. Right. Come into my presence is what he's saying. Uh, we go to church in some way loosely speaking, to get God. We go to meet with him. Uh, there's an element of giving in worship, right? So it is for us to praise God and glorify him. Um, we also know that in John 17, Jesus says that this is eternal life, that they might know you, speaking to his Father in prayer, right? So in some ways, salvation is about knowing God. Where do we know God? Mainly through his worship. Uh we referenced this one a minute ago. The church is not just the household of God, but it's also called the bride of Christ. Right? The bride follows and obeys her husband. As unpopular as that is, that's what the Bible says, First Peter 3 and other places. Jesus, as the husband and king of the church, makes disciples through baptism and teaching. Matthew 28, Go therefore make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey whatsoever things I've commanded you. And I would also push back on the Baptists here that discipleship begins not uh, unto baptism, but after baptism, mm-hmm. right? The normal way, like you're baptized and then brought in, right? Or baptism brings you into discipleship rather than being discipled so that you'll understand baptism. That's obviously for children more than it would be for someone who's raised a, a pagan. You want to disciple them before they're baptized. But right. the order of that passage is interesting, right, compared to the way they push back and whatnot. But anyway, uh, baptism and teaching, where is that found? In the church, right? 
we all know that anyone going around baptizing somebody as a, a solo man, a solo act, claiming that he can lead people to Jesus, sometimes cult leaders claim they are Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. Anytime somebody doing that outside of a church, we know they're a wacko, right? So where is God baptizing, teaching, and also uh, feeding uh, in the church? And we have this phrase we call the means of grace, right? That God gives his grace to us in order that we might be saved. Well, how do we know he's doing that? Well, some people say, well, I just feel it, right? Well, what's the difference in your feeling and my feeling? I don't feel it. Does that mean I'm not a Christian? Mm -hmm. right? So we say in God's word, he teaches about the means of grace. The word is the chief one, then the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and then we also include prayer, that that's the way God gives us salvation, that he meets with us chiefly in those things. But where do you have the word, sacraments, and prayer? worship of the church right so not only is worship about giving but it's also about receiving right we receive gifts from god in worship uh one more thing sorry that's fine church slash worship is the meeting of heaven and earth right we'll talk about this in the next question a little bit more i think but it's where god does his work of reconciling man to himself right jesus came forth he says that he might bring us to god right jesus ascended He's going to return, but in his returning, he's bringing us to God. And in his ascension, part of the reason he had to be a man was so that man, humanity, could go up into the presence of God. Uh, worship is uh, our being brought nearer to God than any other time in this life. It is heaven on earth, we might say, the meeting of, of earth and heaven. So is that fair? I think that was a pretty well-fleshed-out answer. Yeah. yeah. We, like I told you, uh, we are passionate about several things, um, and it kind of distinguishes us from other branches of Christianity. Not to say other branches of Christianity don't care about worship. Right. They just don't think about it yeah. in the way that we do. It's not as in-depth or gotcha. precise. Yeah. You know, the whole Puritan movement in church yeah. history. Yeah. What, whatever you make of the Puritans, one of the things that, that they were always uh, accused of was, sir, you are too precise. And their response would be, well, I serve a precise God. Right, so gotcha. anyway. Yeah, so instead of painting with a little fine detailed, well, you're painting with a fine detailed brush where others may be taking broad strokes with a roller. Yeah, in certain things, yes. And worship would be one of them. We, we wanna get that right because that's what we're gonna do for eternity. Right? That's what heaven is. The new heaven mm -hmm. and the new earth is the worship of the triune God by his people whom he saved. Right? So we want to understand it. And it's really what the Bible is all about. It's what the point of the Exodus was. Mm -hmm. When God brought his people out of Egypt, he said, I'm bringing you out in order that you might worship me. Right? Not so that you can not have those mean old Egyptians over you, though that was obviously included in that. Right. But the point was worship. And that's why we say we're made for the glory of God. Okay. And that's chiefly known in his worship. So, Cool. So, for the next question, what is the itinerary of your average church service? Okay, so I gave you all a bulletin for the morning and evening uh, service. And I assume that's what you mean, like what we do in our worship services? Yes. Yes. Okay. So, um, yeah, we call it worship service. Uh, some people are more comfortable with the word liturgy. Some people are not. Um, but if you'll open the, the one that says morning worship service on the front, 
-hmm. right? I can just walk you through that, or you can look at it. You have the call to worship where we have a passage of Scripture that God addresses us and calls us into his presence, right? So that's what I was telling you about the meeting of heaven and earth. It's not just a, a mental thing. It's something we go through in the word that God's calling us to himself. And then we have an invocation, which is the opening prayer where we ask God to, to bless this affair uh, and to do what he promises, right, to meet with us. And then we begin with a, a hymn or a psalm of praise. You'll notice it says Psalter there. That's because we sing the psalms as well as hymns. Like We sing Amazing Grace, yeah. uh, but we also sing Psalms 1 through 150 in, in different ways. And cool. I always mark that out. That's something that is sometimes more known in Presbyterian churches than others. Uh, sometimes, unfortunately, it's not. Uh, then after we've begun with praise, like you've got this idea of approaching God, you, you come into his presence, you, you immediately confront it with his glory, especially if you're thinking about things biblically. So you're confronted with God's glory and who he is and his holiness, then you've got to confess your sins because you're not holy, right? So we have a reading of God's law and a prayer of confession and supplication following that reading where I'll confess the sins on behalf of the congregation, we pray with the we, right? We have sinned against you in thought and word and deed. And we ask that you'd forgive us and supply uh, salvation to us afresh in Christ, right? And uh, then I read, after that prayer, I read an assurance of pardon, which is a verse of uh, about God's work of salvation through Christ, Right, where you can receive assurance that you are forgiven if you receive this in faith kind of thing. All right, uh, so then, naturally, what do you do? You thank God. You've been cleansed. You've brought near to God. So we have a hymn of thanksgiving, and then we confess our faith using the Apostles' Creed. Uh, we use the Apostles' Creed every week except on uh, Communion Sundays, which is the first Sunday of every month. Then we use the Nicene Creed, okay. which is a little bit longer, uh, but also on the Trinity. Um, and then uh, <clears throat> we have our presenting of our offering. Right? So we take up an offering, and uh, then we sing either the Gloria Patri, uh, Glory be to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Maybe you know that song. It's a very short little ditty. Uh, or the doxology. Most Baptist churches are singing that after you, you, know, you take up the offering, and then they bring it back and put it on the table. I don't mm -hmm. know if you've seen that. Yeah. And while they're walking back up, the congregation normally sings the doxology. So we right. alternate between the Gloria Patria and the doxology okay. in the morning and the evening service. So, uh, And then there's another prayer uh, where we thank God for receiving us. Uh, we ask that he'd bless our offerings. Uh, but And then we pray for illumination, that by the Holy Spirit, God would illumine our minds to prepare us for the preaching of his word. Right. So then you have the scripture readings. Then the sermon carries over onto the second page this week. Um, and our sermons are 25 to 35 minutes. That's with the scripture reading. So depending on, there's longer readings tomorrow. So the actual body of the sermon will probably be 20 to 25 minutes, where the reading will be I don't know, five to six minutes maybe. Sometimes they go longer. Uh, but yeah, I don't write manuscripts. I just have a detailed outline that I take up there and right. give room for some freedom. But um, And then after the sermon, there's a prayer of application that God would apply what we've learned to us, and we close that prayer with the Lord's Prayer, saying that every week 
Uh, and then we have a uh, commissioning hymn, you could call it that, uh, where we uh, sing something that is in light of the truth of the sermon that enables us to take what we've learned into the week. Right? So you're commissioned uh, into the world, and then you go out with the benediction. Right? So if you think of, uh, I don't know how much you know about the Old Testament, but when they would go up to worship God, they would literally go up a mountain, and then they go down, basically. Right? Okay. It's the movement of Leviticus. That they go up to God's presence, and then they go out into the wilderness. Yeah, I'm and working I, my way through the Old Testament. Yeah, slowly. so in, uh, in the movement of our worship, we do that same thing. Right? We come up to the presence of God, we're received by Him, we're instructed by Him, and then we're sent out by Him into the wilderness. So that's your commission by God Himself. Just like He calls you, He closes the worship service with uh, benediction, the blessing, right? grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all forevermore. Amen. And that's the end. And then I walk out and they sing the twofold amen while I make my way to the door. So yeah, that's our, our morning service. And then the evening service is, sorry, it's printed upside down, but you can just flip it. Um, our evening service is not as, uh, it doesn't have as many parts, if you want to call it that, mm-hmm. uh, just because it's shorter and a little bit less formal. Um, but this congregation doesn't have a, a tradition of having formal evening worship, so we're kind of trying to build up to that. Uh, gotcha. Lord willing, we can do something in the future more similar to our morning service, but like our morning service will be an hour, hour, and 15 minutes. Evening service is 45. Right. So, okay. Yeah, and you have the, the same basic parts. Um, uh, call to worship invocation but before we have our evening service we have something that a lot of churches don't have we have a prayer meeting where we have 30 minutes of uh, congregational prayer I open it at 5 o'clock where I take prayer requests and then we pray um, I open that with prayer and then when everybody's done praying not not everybody prays but a handful of people do mm-hmm. and uh, <clears throat> I'll close that about 5.30 and we begin the evening service and we're having the prayer meeting because uh, you have it all throughout the book of Acts that the church met together for prayer specifically. Right? They met for worship too and the breaking of bread, but right before the Holy Spirit falls in Acts 2, they're in the upper room praying. So we want the Holy Spirit to bless what we do too, so we gather mm-hmm. and pray like that. Uh, so yeah, similar, similar flow, just not as detailed. Um, and uh, yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, um, I'll let Michael ask the next question too, so I'm not asking all the questions. Okay. So, what is the place of your church within the community you serve? Yeah, so uh, we are, like a lot of churches, in need of uh, much grace and repentance to do better about that. Um, we, two things, you know, one I mentioned earlier, we're right next to the apartments, and sometimes we get people trickling over, but we could do we could do better with that um, we could do more about reaching out in the neighborhoods so that is i mean i'm just confessing to y'all you know we need to do better right. uh, with that but um we do have uh the homeschool co-op that meets here some people learn about our church that way um i have a plan to start doing some street preaching uh that would be interesting yeah i've got the equipment to do it i've just been lazy about getting out to do it so so like are you gonna have like a PA attached to you and just go out? Yeah, it's a little uh, a headset, like you wear the speaker on your hip, uh-huh. and uh, then you just have the little thing. That would be interesting. It would be, yeah. 
Yeah, because most people, you know, what their exposure to street preaching is like. People being annoying and in your face. Yeah, or, yeah. Or very uh, televangelist type. Yeah, yeah, and and it would not be like that at all. Now, some people that hate Christianity would view it all the same. Right. Right, but yeah, it's something we need to do better. Um, we have some ideas about things, but our, uh, our congregation is, um, we don't have uh, so many... Uh, young folks who are single and super engaged in a lot of stuff during the week. Like we have a lot of families, but they homeschool. So the community impact will, there will be some ultimately, but it's going to look a lot different than, you know, somebody who lives in a neighborhood and their kid gets off the school bus with 18 other kids that they go to school with and they hang out in their yard. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's, and, and that kind of ties into the way we view things in general that, uh, the way God works is much more organic, right? That it is much more, you know, from uh, these, um, I don't know, building of, of small clusters where they expand out. So we do encourage our people to hospitality, to invite people over for dinner. We do uh, very often, normally every Sunday, have lunch after the service mm-hmm. uh, over in the fellowship hall. Any visitors we have, we try to invite them. Um, and that, that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, so how is your church governed? Well, uh, we are Presbyterian, so we are governed by presbyters, right? So the word, like Baptists are known for baptism, right? Uh, Methodists, you know what the term Methodists mean, where it came from? All right, I so it was the method or something, something like Yeah, so in England, uh, uh, through the revivalism and all that that swept through there, mm-hmm. uh, these certain smaller clusters of Christians began to have a certain method mm-hmm. to the way they practiced Christianity, and it was upsetting the national church, and they kind of went out and formed their own thing. Well, they're called the Methodists, right? They've got their method over there. And uh, so, yeah, and historically, you know, Methodists were uh, pretty broad, right? And like now, they're known for being not Calvin Calvinistic at all. Right. Like you have guys like George Whitfield and earlier Methodists who were, but then you had the the split with uh, Wesley and the Wesley brothers. Maybe you've seen a Wesley Methodist church before. I've seen a few. or the Wesleyan Arminian, churches. Yeah. That's same same idea. They're Arminian, whereas we're Calvinists. But um, Anyway, sorry, don't want to talk about somebody else's church. We're governed by presbyters. Uh, that's the Greek word for elder, basically. Um, and uh, we have a local governing body, which is the session of the church. So all of the elders make up the session. I'm an elder, but I'm a teaching elder, which is the position of pastor. But there's also ruling elders, right, which have the same amount of authority as me, and we serve together on the session, right? Think of the term like the meeting is in session, mm-hmm. right? So we are the session. Hold on, you're like, you're like you're like thirty. How are you an elder? Right. So is uh, an elder not a? Uh... Yeah, there's there's a balance in that, uh, or not balance, but tension, right? Mm-hmm. In scripture, like you even have Paul, where he commissions Timothy, and he says, "Don't let them look down on you because of your age." Mm-hmm. And Timothy was serving as something like a an elder of elders in his role in First and Second Timothy, mm-hmm. um, and yeah. So elder, it is in Scripture normally 
attributed to someone who is older, right? Uh, but not always. But there's also debate over uh, whether the pastor is an elder. Like there, if you study Presbyterian church history, especially, there's debates over whether there are two types of elders, mm-hmm. whether there's a pastor and an elder, whether there's a pastor, teacher, elder, and doctor. I mean, it's it's crazy. Just gotcha. It's yeah, kind of silly in my opinion, but. Uh, our denomination, we have two types of elders, and the pastor is the teaching elder. So we are the spiritual leadership over this congregation, and we also have a, a diaconate, which is the deacons. They handle the physical needs and the finances and whatnot. So we like to say that just as uh, man is made up of body and spirit or body and soul, God provides in the church ministry for body the diaconate, and soul, the session, the elders. Gotcha. Right? So that's the local expression. And then you have the regional expression, which is we call a presbytery. Right? So our presbytery extends from here into uh, like northern Columbia, basically. And I think we've got about 25 churches in our presbytery. And we meet once every quarter. Okay. And uh, they are the ones who actually ordain the pastors. Presbytery does. You see this in 1 Timothy 4, where Paul talks about Timothy's being ordained by the Presbytery, having hands laid on him. So it's a, a body of elders, just like us, but it's above the local level. So a pastor in Columbia has some kind of authority over me as a member of the Presbytery. Right? I vow, though, to submit to them uh, in my ordination. And then we also have a national branch which is we call when it gathers it's called the general assembly and with the general assembly it's a uh, once a year meeting uh, and all of the elders of the presbyterian church in america are invited Um, i'm going at the end of june it's in st louis and one of our other elders is going with me and we there we meet for business and other things there's different committees but really things that happen at the denominational level do affect us. Mm-hmm. It's not like the Southern Baptist Convention where when they meet, it doesn't really have any impact over the local congregation. I mean, it, it does in some way affect the outward witness of the Southern Baptist Convention because, I mean, if they go liberal, then every congregation that's in the Southern Baptist Convention is more or less going to be viewed that way. Right. But it's our denomination is built with an authority structure where there is some force that they can exert over churches that are a member of the denomination. So you're not the supreme dictator of your church? Basically. No, despite what some people think. <laughs> I'm not. Okay. I'm not, yeah. Yeah. So it seems more like a more... There's a structure to it. Yeah, more structured. And, more, yeah. and the, the officers, uh, elders and deacons, are elected. So it's a lot like uh, representative government. Okay, gotcha. Right. You can, there's historical books you can read about uh, the... Uh, founding fathers getting their ideas, some of them, about the way a country should be structured of government from John Calvin. Okay. Um, Not because of the way he designed the Genevan government per se, but the way he laid out church government by representation. And you see it in Acts 6 where they voted on who was going to be their deacons. Yeah. Right. So churches that that don't allow their congregation to vote on who their officers are going to be are out of line with Scripture. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, But, yeah, anyway. All right, so uh, from what I understand, uh, Presbyterianism is essentially Calvinist in its theology. Mm-hmm. So 
just how Calvinist are you guys? <laughs> well, that, that, uh, the next few questions I'll probably dig in. Yeah. That, um, how hardcore Calvinist are you guys? Because we we did have a uh, one of our first episodes uh, was do we have free will? Okay. And we kind of discussed like the free will slash Calvinist slash you know Armenian debate kind of thing. Okay. And uh, we didn't really. I, it was a little disorganized. I don't think we came to any conclusions, but it was a fun thought experiment. Yeah. So, so when you say Calvinist, do you, I mean, do you have mainly? It seems like you mainly have in mind predestination and free will. Partly, yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, I know there's more too. Yeah, Calvinism, yeah, sure. But um, obviously, I know most churches in today are not necessarily what exactly the reformers wanted they're not sure. a carbon copy of that church they they you know they diverge on certain little things and that's how denominations right, form right. And all. um so i guess like where how much are you affirming of calvinist theology and like where maybe some differences because the for example like the lutheran church they're not a carbon copy of martin luther they disagree with him on certain things mm-hmm. so i guess kind of where's that for you guys yeah, um, <clears throat> part of the problem with uh, Reformed uh, church history, Presbyterianism, is you get these uh, bubbles occasionally that just pop up and then explode and cause all kind of problems, but they claim to be the true heirs of so-and-so. Right. Right. Um, <clears throat> we have this moniker we use. We, we call them TR totally reformed or truly reformed like i'm more reformed than you because i hold to this doctrine mm-hmm. i'm more reformed than you than because i hold to that and that's one of the reasons i gave you the the westminster we call it the westminster standards the confession of faith larger and shorter catechism we'll get to that in a minute um but as far as uh denomination goes our denomination um pretty much holds to uh everything that I'm aware that John Calvin taught. I've read a lot of Calvin. Um, we, the big things that he's known for is, uh, you know, an emphasis on worship, uh, an emphasis on uh, practical holiness, um, an emphasis on including children in the covenant or in the church, um, a uh, certain, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, just, just a love for. The scriptures, not that other Christians don't teach that. There's just a certain accent on it right. in Calvin, um, and you you know you read that and you get it immediately. Some call him uh, the theologian of the Holy Spirit because of his emphasis on the role of the Holy Spirit in the church and the life of the Christian and all those things. Um, but maybe we could uh, move into the next question uh, about tulip. Yeah. Uh, so I guess because um, I, I think we could get more into the. That'll probably answer yeah. this question. That was kind of, I guess, like a prelude. Yeah. But um, can you explain TULIP, um, which people who may or may not know what that is, you'll explain what. Yeah. It's, it's an acronym. And then what are your views on predestination along with that? Okay, so we'll start with TULIP. Uh, TULIP is actually a modern thing uh, okay. as far as, like, the term itself was coined in the late 20th, no, late 19th, early 20th century. Somebody did it to be clever. 
Yeah. Right. But what it was based on. Yeah. yeah. What it was based on was uh, that picture that I have right up there, the Senate of Dort, uh, which met in Dortrecht uh, of the Netherlands in 1618 and 1619. So a little church history lesson. Uh, countries have historically had national churches. You still have it in England. You still have it in Scotland. You still have it in the Netherlands. You still have it in Germany. Mm-hmm. Those kinds of things. Well, in the 17th century, there was beginning to be the rise of certain teachers that came to be known as Armenians, right? And this church council met, uh, the Senate of Dort, uh, to discuss how to respond to it. Well, their response to it was given in, you could summarize it, in five points. Now, it wasn't ordered in the way TULIP is ordered. But like you said, TULIP is just something that's clever and easy to uh, remember. But the background of those five points, often called the five points of Calvinism, which again is not even really the case. Uh, Like, yeah, Calvinists may emphasize these certain elements of Christianity and Scripture more than others, but it's... They were not saying, oh, we're Reformed and they're Arminians. They're saying, this is not what the Bible teaches, and we've got to respond to it. Right? So, you know, they didn't have denominations. Right. They had a national church, and they were trying to root out error. Right? So, it, yeah, historically it became Reformed or Presbyterian, if you want to call it that. Um, but TULIP is uh, total depravity. Unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. All right. So, you want me to explain those briefly? Yeah. Uh, both. I I know what they are, but sure. People at home and yeah. Okay. Know. All right. So, uh, T total depravity. That's our view, and what we would argue is the scriptural view of uh, our state in our. Um, being sinners outside of Christ. We are totally depraved. Some people say utterly depraved. Some people say thoroughly depraved. I mean, the point is that in light of passages like Ephesians 2, we are dead in sin, right? What can a dead man do spiritually? Nothing, right? So out of that, you get something like unconditional election, right? So if he's dead spiritually, then he can't do anything to respond to God God has to do something. Well, is God's choice of doing that arbitrary? Is it just random in the moment? Or is it based on something that he decided before? And that's where you get unconditional election. That those who were in sin or out of all of humanity, the sinful mass of humanity, God unconditionally, not based on anything in them, elected those who would be saved and those who wouldn't. Now, some people immediately get the pushback and you say, well, that's not fair. Yeah. But you're dead. What can you do if God doesn't do something? And God is God, and he gets to make the choice. It's not that God causes uh, the dead to stay dead. He just doesn't illuminate or bring to life all. Right. So out of that uh, elected body, you have this idea. So we've gone T, we've gone U, now we're at L. You've got limited atonement. Some people prefer definite atonement and if i'm going to talk to somebody about tulip that's probably what i'd say too uh the point is that jesus's death secured the salvation of the elect now 
there's debate there too. Not just that Jesus secured the salvation of the elect, because you can actually whittle down every, you know, most Christians, and they would agree with that, right? Why are who goes to heaven? Why are they there? Well, because of Jesus's death on the cross, right? So in some way, those who are in heaven are always going to be affirmed as those who were died for by Jesus. But there's debate in Reformed uh, Christianity, Reformed history, over whether Jesus' death had any intent for the non-elect. There's, you know, again, some on some side of that and some on the others. So that's why you get the distinction between definite atonement. It definitely did something Mm -hmm. versus limited. Not only did it definitely do something, but it was limited in its approach. Right. So we say Jesus definitely accomplished the salvation of the elect. Uh, but historically, Christians have also said something like, not only did it do that, but it was sufficient to save any. Right. So we have the free offer of the gospel, and whosoever will come will be saved. But we also know that only those whom God awakens to spiritual life will come. So it's trying to hold in tension uh, or to maintain the tension that Scripture has, because Jesus says that he lays down his life for the sheep. Right? And there's other places where you have this emphasis on his death being for many rather than for all. But you also have the emphasis where he's the Savior of the world. But then it says in the very next phrase, especially of those who believe. Mm-hmm. Right? And anyway, that's there, our there, trying to... Yeah, there's lots of debate around yeah. all of that within all Christian yeah. groups, really. Yeah, I mean... That and predestination are the two most difficult doctrines for people that come to understand or know about Reformed theology mm-hmm. and why they think it is, is so wrong. Um, but I, for, you know, the terminology itself, I don't, I'm, I'm not married to it. I'm not required to affirm TULIP, though I think that it's a fine summary as far as it goes. Right, I, I do think that Jesus died to save the elect, but his death was sufficient to save the world if God intends to do that. Right? But we know that there are an elect body out of the human race that will be saved. Right? You don't persevere in the faith, which we'll get to in a second, because you're strong, but because of God's power, right? because of God's election, ultimately. So limited atonement, irresistible grace. So you've got the elect, and you have to be... You don't have to be, but Scripture teaches that you can be certain that those whom God has elected will come to faith. Romans 8, those whom he called, he justified. Right? Well, you might say, well, God calls everybody. Well, no, he doesn't, because if he did, they would all be justified. Right? So that doctrine develops out of that. It's irresistible grace. That doesn't mean that uh, Christians are perfect and that they always obey the grace of God. What it means is that when God desires to bring that person to him, it will happen. Right? And then that gets you to perseverance of the saints, that those whom God has elected, those whose salvation Jesus has secured on the cross, they will persevere in the faith. Right? So this is the di- distinction between those who profess Christianity and fall away and those who profess Christianity and don't. They persevere because of what God has done for their salvation, not because they're smart and better than the atheists or anything like that, but because of what God has done in them 
there's several places in Scripture that, that point to that, that it's not so much us persevering as it is God's preserving and keeping us. So gotcha. um, my views on, on predestination is uh, or are um, the Bible talks about it, and I believe it, uh, that God not only predestined who would be saved, but he foreordained whatsoever would come to pass uh, in every way, every jot and tittle. Now, the way that works out is uh, hard for us to grasp. He's God. We're not. He's outside of time. We're not. Um, so, yeah. Is that okay. sufficient? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'll let you go ahead and do the next one. This is this kind of bounces off of yeah. this question. Yeah. So, if God is truly omniscient, do we actually have free will? And I guess to kind of expand upon that, because with what you were talking um, with tulip and predestination, is it to me it kind of sounds like, um, well, actually, I'll I'll say that for later. But you you can answer that one for now, and then okay. we'll, I'll come back to it. So, I feel like we need to agree on what free will means. Right, because that's part of the discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think anybody believes that we're uh, absolutely free to do whatsoever, but also we aren't robots, right? So the way I would explain it, um, in light of well, we can reference Ephesians two um, and other places, uh, but how Scripture describes those who are outside of Christ as dead in sins and trespasses. It's not that a dead man can't choose anything. It's just that he can't bring himself to life. And he's bound to do things that dead people do, which would be sin. Right? So, um, where, where we're at, free will. So the will of the, the unbeliever is free, but it's only free to choose what he wills. And he will only will that which is unrighteous or that which is ultimately serving for his own betterment or maybe the, the biggest way to explain it is he will only will that which uh, does, not, uh, um, does not direct itself towards the glory of God. So unbelievers can do outwardly good things, but what makes it sinful, even in their doing of good in some way, would be that it's not directed at the glory of God. That doesn't make it a bad thing. It just makes it um, impure, less uh, holy, or unholy, we might say, not less holy. Uh, so, you know, a, a lot of the illustrations people use is, uh, you know, an unbeliever helping an old lady across the street. Yeah, I mean, that's a good thing to do. Thank God he did. She didn't get hit by a car, mm-hmm. right? But uh, he chose that not for the reason that a Christian should choose it or not the reason for the Bible teaching it, right? He can do that, uh, but... He would be doing it imperfectly. And not that Christians do it perfectly, but Christians do it by faith. So there is a free will, uh, but it's only free to will that which it desires, or it's only free to will that which uh, is uh, in service to its master. Gotcha. Right? The master of the unbeliever is the flesh. The master of the unbeliever is, in some ways, the devil. The master of the Christian is the Lord God Almighty. Right. So we're free to will uh, whatever God has enabled our hearts to will, and we do it freely. But um, we also say out of that that only the Christian truly has 
free will because they can choose to do righteousness and okay. to do things that are truly good and received by God. Yeah. Um, so I think kind of stemming out of this as a side question, I think part of what might be perceived as the problem with Calvinism is it kind of seems like a very deterministic and fatalistic view of mm-hmm. things because it's like, okay, God set up everything. He determined everything that's going to happen. And then you get into something like the problem of evil mm-hmm. and say, okay, well, if God could have done it otherwise, why didn't he? It, if God determined all these evil things to allow that to happen, uh, why? Because, I mean, someone who might be maybe a little bit more Arminian would be able to say, well, people have free will and people choose to do those things. And that's not necessarily what God wills. But under Calvinism, it kind of seems that they were bound to do that anyway. So, so. No, I mean, I don't disagree with what you just described as the Armenian perspective. Mm-hmm. Some guys would push back on that. But like I said, if, if we affirm that men freely choose what they choose, right, then God has ordered it in such a way that you know, they do freely choose it and they're guilty for it. It's not that, <clears throat> let, well, let's go back for a second. I guess the question is, doesn't that make like God indirectly responsible for the evil in the world? Um, it, not responsible, but uh, it's not outside of his control. Okay, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, he's not the author of it either. Uh, for when God made the world, he looked on everything that he had made and he declared it very good. Then, sin came. Right, sin came through the serpent's deceiving of of Eve, Eve's giving to Adam, and the falling of the human race. <clears throat> so in that, right, we as uh, Reformed Christians, but I would argue that this is not a Reformed distinctive. This is a historically Christian distinctive that all men, because they descend from Adam and Eve, men and women, right, because they are our ultimate father and mother, the first man and woman, uh, because that's true, then all are born in sin, this gives you the place of the virgin birth, right? If all are born in sin, then Jesus has to be born a different way. That's why he's conceived by the Holy Spirit and not by the seed of Joseph. Right? So you have that preservation of that, that holiness. And some, you know, the Roman Catholic view, they try to take it even a step further and say, well, well Mary was also sinless. Mm-hmm. That is debated in Christian history, but certainly not necessary from Scripture. Right. right? That's one of the problems we have with Catholics, that they make things that aren't, very clear in scripture not just um things that you ought to believe that things that you're required to believe for salvation yeah right we think that you know we only require you to believe you know certain things which we'll get into in a moment uh but that only that which is clearly revealed in scripture is required for uh salvation but anyway back to adam so if we fall in adam we're all born guilty but also unrighteous Right? Not just guilty based on his act, but we actually, because we descend from him, are like him in his fall. And one of the popular ways of saying it and teaching it as children is in Adam's fall, we send all. Romans 5, 12 to 21 lays this out clearly. Just as death came through one man, so righteousness comes through another. We're united to Adam, and if we want to be saved, we better be united to Jesus is, is the implication. So, uh, and you know the doctrine of imputation. 
Mm-hmm. Right? That just as Christians believe that Jesus' righteousness is imputed to us, like imputed into a bank account almost, so for that to work, you also have to have the imputation of guilt and unrighteousness, which started with Adam. And, you know, the righteousness of Christ replaces that. Um, but as far as that relates to uh, the free will discussion, if you're born guilty, you're born dead in sin, uh, you didn't choose that either. Right. And all Christians affirm that. Like All Orthodox Christians affirm the called original sin, right, that we inherit that guilt. Uh, so um, I, there's not really a tension. I mean, it's a problem for somebody who doesn't like the Bible, and doesn't believe in God, but it's not ultimately a Christian problem because we believe that, that you're already born guilty and not just able to sin, but inclined to do so unless God intervenes. So in what way do you have free will being born like that? Well, the way Scripture says, the way that we can reason and deduce from experience says, right? You don't have to teach a child to do wrong things because they're born with a sinful nature. You do have to teach them to do right things, mm-hmm. right? And you can, you know, take any number of approaches to that. But uh, as far as evil comes into that, men are born desirous of evil. And if God does not restrain, then they will do evil, right? And I don't know if that answers I think the question. So. It's yeah. roundabout way. I kind of right. lost my way there, but... Yeah. All right. Um, so... According to your tradition's theological perspective, what must one do to be saved? Right. So this is where uh, I'm going to bring up the confession and larger and shorter catechism. Uh, I wanted to give you all that because that's a summary of what we believe the Bible teaches. Okay. Right? And several parts of that, or no, not several, most of that will be agreeable with every Christian tradition. Right, every Orthodox tradition. When I say Orthodox, I just mean correct teaching. A little old Orthodox. Yeah, right, yeah. yeah. Uh, or Catholic. Right. We believe in one holy Holy's Catholic and apostolic yeah. church. We yeah. confess that in the creeds. But um, anyway, one of the questions there is in the Shorter Catechism, and it's number 85, and it says, What does God require of us that we might escape his wrath and curse due to us for sin? Right. So that's a way of asking your question. How are you saved? And it says, To escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin, God requires of us. So here's the list. And this was written in the 1640s -hmm. by uh, a group of of Christian ministers and theologians from just several places on the um, United Kingdom area, basically. England, Scotland, and whatnot. Uh, And this has been the way that Presbyterians summarize... The Christian faith since then. So I'm just drawing a question from our standards, is what we call them. Right. Or uh, I think the Lutherans called them symbols. Okay. The symbols of the faith kind of thing. So what is required based on what Scripture teaches? First is faith in Jesus Christ. Second is repentance unto life. And then this interesting element at the end that most people don't really think is Protestant when they hear it. With the diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption. Right? So you ask most people, Protestants, what do you have to do to be saved? Some people will very scarily say, believe in God. Right? That's it. 
All you got to do is just believe. Right. Well, the Bible also says the demons believe yeah. and shudder. Yeah. Right. So that's not enough. Uh, but you also have to have faith in Jesus Christ. Yeah, you need to believe God exists, otherwise Jesus Christ won't make any sense. Right. But you have faith in Christ because he is the one whom God's provided for our salvation. Right. Paul emphasized it over and over again. The New Testament emphasizes it. The Old Testament prophesied it, that there would be this one to come, this king, this savior, this mediator, this Messiah, who would save, who would accomplish all these things. Jesus is that one, and you must believe that he is that one. So that's what it means summary, to have faith in Jesus Christ. He has stood in our place. But also repentance, right? Because anybody can say not just that they believe in God, but that they have faith, right? Because faith is, you can't see it, you can't touch it, right? It's just a, it's not bare mental assent, Mm -hmm. but it could be framed that way because anybody can say that they have it. Repentance is necessary. The Bible teaches this in all the sermons and the apostles in the book of Acts. Jesus emphasizes it, repentance in order to enter the kingdom of God and all those things. Repentance is turning around, right? So you turn from sin and you turn to God through Jesus Christ. Uh, but also, the, the, the funny element of it, if you want to call it that, the diligent use of all the outward means, that's the means of grace that I talked about earlier, whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption. So if you want to be saved, you have to go to church, right? It doesn't mean God is bound because God can do whatever he wishes, but that he does promise to communicate salvation to us through the word, through the sacraments, and through prayer. So not just that initial conversion experience that a lot of Protestants like to talk about, like Mm -hmm. when were you saved? Well, April 28th, 1998. Okay, right. Again, that's a very modern thing to think of salvation that way. A lot of Christians would like in his history. I think if you asked them that question, when were you saved? They they would say something like, "Well, when Jesus died on the cross," yeah, or when I was baptized. Um, But they're also emphasizing here that uh, repentance is necessary. It's an ongoing thing. Uh, it's not just something you do once where you have a conversion experience. Christians are repenting people. I think I heard y'all, maybe it was in the episode I listened to, but you talked about prayer and fasting, right? That that is an element of Christianity. It's, it's so lost today. You talk to people about fasting, and they're like, what, deny myself? Are you crazy? Yeah. The Bible's full of it, mm-hmm. you know? God called his people to it over and over again in the Old Testament, and Jesus doesn't rescind that. He doesn't say if you fast. He, went he says when you fast. Yeah. He himself went to the wilderness for 40 days Mm -hmm. to fast. And I mean, you know all that. But these outward means, these ways that we can say we participate in the salvation that God communicates to earth is the word, the sacraments, and in prayer. So you're not just brought into the faith by the sacraments, but you're built up and nourished in the faith by the Lord's Supper, by the preaching of the word, and by prayer. So what do you have to do to be saved? Well, it's kind of complicated, but also it is... You know, you could say to somebody, well, believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That is what the Bible says. But you have to define what that means. Right. Right? Because my, you What know, are the implications right, of that? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And that's what they were doing. Uh, we call them the Westminster Standards. So we call them the Westminster Divines, the men who wrote these things years ago uh, that we believe are faithful to Scripture. That's what they were communicating was that, yes... It is faith in Christ, but it's also repentance because the Bible talks about that too. Mm -hmm. And it's also uh, submitting yourself to the means of grace and 
and whatnot. So, okay. <clears throat> so, what is the role and nuance between faith and works in one's faith journey? Okay. You kind of answered that a little bit already. Yeah, and we can talk about it a little bit more uh, if you want. And I'll just say some of the stuff I've got written down here, and you can tell me. Uh, one, the phrase faith journey makes me want to throw up. So, anyway. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I, I know I, you're uh, choosing the modern lingo, I guess, that, that a lot of people would be comfortable I, with. I was just trying, yeah, kind of. I, I'm not accusing, I'm not like condemning you. I'm just saying, like, I want you to know that there are Christians who are not just 75 years old and locked up in a Catholic church who think language like that is stupid. Yeah, I um, mainly the way I was trying to go with it, I was trying to be neutral with a lot of the right, language. Right. So I'm trying to not be like, because um, certain Christians believe that salvation is a process. Certain people believe it's a one-time thing. So I figured like, mm-hmm. you know, faith journey is vague enough to kind of cover sure. both. That yeah. was my thinking. No, right. yeah, I know. I just wanted to let you know. Like, it's okay. I wouldn't actually use it. Yeah. Legit- I wouldn't use it legitimately. Yeah, so Hebrews twelve fourteen <laughs> says, Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. Right? So are works necessary or required? Yes. Right. Holiness is required for salvation. I mean, the Bible says it plainly there, and we could argue it in other places as well. The way that, that God marks out his people throughout history is two different ways, the condition of their heart and the way they live, and the one reveals the other. Like when he rebukes the, the uh, people in the Old Testament through the prophets, sometimes he calls on their hearts, sometimes he calls on their actions, right? but there's no real separation between those. And you get that uh, in places like James, right, where you're justified by your works. Some people say you're, you're vindicated by your works. It's talking about this horizontal relationship or this horizontal uh, display that our faith has. Because he says faith without works is dead. Well, how do you show that you have a living faith? Or what does a living faith do? Well, it works. And we would say that works are required, but they're not meritorious, properly speaking. They don't atone. Only Christ does that. But that they are necessary. And the Bible says without holiness, and that's a practical holiness, no man shall see the Lord. Uh, one way to, to speak of it, this does make a lot of Reformed people nervous, but I'm totally comfortable with it. We are justified by faith. We say converted, maybe. But we're saved by works. Right? Now that's a stretching of the term saved in a way that a lot of people aren't comfortable with today, mm-hmm. but it's the way the Bible uses it. Right? That salvation is it makes me a little nervous to say salvation is a process because right? it's not as if you uh, are saved one day and you're not the next per se, right? but that it is, uh, let's use the word organic again. It, you do grow in, in holiness. You do come to learn more and hopefully based on that learning, live more faithfully. Right? So to say you're saved by works is to say that your walk with the Lord is going to be marked by good works. Your path to salvation, which is ultimately eternal glory, is going to be marked by good works. Or otherwise, the Bible says you're not a Christian, right? How do you begin that journey? Well, you're justified by faith. You know, Protestant Reformation and all that good stuff. Right. Uh, but anyway, um, faith is the gift of God, enabling us to embrace Christ for salvation, and works prove that that has happened. And they're also the path we must walk to glory. Does that 
answer your question basically yeah, yeah. it's like the seal of what you say you believe it's mm-hmm. like walk the walk talk the talk kind of yeah. thing yeah yeah and what does sin do to people okay we've kind of touched on that a yeah. little bit with the being dead yeah but yeah getting... here's a, a passage uh proverbs 5 22 and 23 uh, it says uh his own iniquities shall take the wicked himself and he shall be holden with the cords of his sins he shall die without instruction and in the greatness of his folly he shall go astray so what does all that mean right uh sin actually possesses people right not in the sense of like demon possession but it has a hold control, yeah, on people uh, it does, uh, and the Bible describes it that way. It uh, says he shall be uh, held with the cords of his sin. So it enslaves you. It does, and this is, goes back to that free will thing, right? You will freely will to do and choose what your master tells you to do, and just as we know, there's no such thing as autonomy, right? It, you like we all um, when y'all uh, referenced in your episode that you're all everyone is going to make some choice to align themselves with some worldview mm-hmm. or some approach that will require certain sacrifices what is that but a recognition of some level of objectivity over all of us that we're submitting to right so what is uh objectivity but a master that is over us right that idea that the author of sin, the devil himself, or if you want to speak of evil more generically in a less Christian, narrowly considered, a less Christian way, but that uh, sin holds us, it ensnares us, and it kills us. The wages of sin is death, right? That was the promise of God to Adam and Eve. If you eat this fruit, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die, right? Now, we learn that that doesn't mean physical death immediately based on the rest of what happens in Genesis, but it does bring that about, right? It was not God's intent that they should die. Otherwise, he wouldn't have made that the, the threat. Um, sin also destroys and seeks to snuff out the image of God. It causes one to uh, talk about hierarchy for a second. Uh, the world is made in a hierarchy. God's at the top, right? Right underneath God is uh, humanity. Right underneath humanity is the angels or in some ways, right? You can debate over what order there is there. Right. And what's under humanity, well, it's everything else that's created, the animals, plant life, and all those things. And what sin does, and you see it in our society, it drives you down that hierarchical ladder. It literally turns you into an animal, right? Who are the most wicked people today, right? The people that act like animals. And some people even try to make themselves look like animals, right? I forget the term that you use that. But if God has determined how this world is ordered, uh, then, you know, sin is progression or digression away from God. It makes you animalistic. It makes you a slave to passions and the flesh. It it literally makes you into an animal, right? Because dogs don't know what uh, faithfulness is to one mate, right? They just do who they do. Right, whenever they want to, they literally uh, follow the smell. Right. Well, how do some men behave today? Just like that, just like that. And they think it's a you know a sign and and a, a good markation of I am masculine. I have all these. I have all these trophies. No, friend, you are a slave. Right. You are literally temptation. acting like a dog. Right. And one of the ways that God rebukes, 
Israel in the Old Testament through the prophets is he says that they're like a, a donkey who's in heat, who exposes her scent to would-be passers-by, is inviting, right, as a, you know, an animalistic prostitute, right, that, that idea. So sin is, um, yes, sin makes you dead, but it is a thing that truly lives and is alive, right? Uh, and if you feed it, it will eat you up. But if it's starved with things like fasting and prayer and the sacraments, ultimately it's uh, going to lose its power. You know how sin is no longer the master of Christians is the way Romans speaks. Uh, but it's ultimately sin will only go away in the life to come because of God's providence and his weighing things out. But wouldn't be Christian without saying this, sin makes you a candidate for salvation. Right? Jesus said, I did not come to save the righteous, but sinners. Now, if you hold a Christian worldview, you know that everybody's a sinner. Right. Right. But Jesus was proving a point. <clears throat> you don't think you're a sinner. You don't think you need salvation. Well, I didn't come to save you. I came to save those who know. Right. So, anyway. Cool. Does that help? Yeah, it was a good answer. Oh, yeah. Um, okay, so probably one of the last of the theologically mm -hmm. oriented questions. Um, how do you view communion, and what does the implica uh, what implications does that view hold? Yeah, so you asked three Presbyterian ministers, you'll probably get three different answers. Uh, some are very comfortable with John Calvin's language. It's very high language, right? very um, elaborate, mm -hmm. um, very um, real. Like there's a distinction that some Christians like to make between uh, real presence of Christ in the supper or the spiritual presence of Christ in the supper. I think those are really the same, as long as spiritual doesn't mean symbolic. Now, there are those on this other side that uh, are more, it'd be more common in the Baptist churches, but it's common in every church, really, people that don't think anything actually goes on in the supper, and it's just a symbol. That's not just a problem with... Um, Protestants. You can read, there was an article, I think it was last year or two years ago, that uh, the Roman Catholic Church did a poll, and it was something like 70%, give or take, of mm. the congregation in the Roman Catholic Church in America believes that the bread and wine is just a symbol. Wow. Now, if you know anything about Roman Catholics, yeah, that's they, not what they teach. That's, yeah, that's not what right? they believe, yeah. supposedly. Yeah. So, all that to say, um, I would say that... Uh, the reform view, if you want to call it such, I would just say the Christian view, because I think we, we agree with Roman Catholics in some way. We agree with the Eastern Orthodox in some way, right, that, that God has represented his truth in, in across the church, and some uh, groups emphasize it better than others. Um, but it is a real presence of Christ, but it's by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is a true man, right? So his body cannot be in more than one place at one time. You never see it happen in Scripture, even in the resurrection. Right? He can do things that might maybe a normal person couldn't do, but you never see him appear to different people at different time, at, at the same time. Right? And even when he goes through the wall, when the disciples are in the locked room, mm -hmm. and he just appears, yeah. right? well, people say, well, see, he did something superhuman there. Well, you also have in the book of Acts, where Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch are together. Philip preaches the gospel to the uh, Ethiopian eunuch, and then Philip is taken and removed to another place. Well, he's not Jesus. So evidently, you know, in some mysterious way, God 
uh, can move us. But I think because of Jesus' true humanity, we say his humanity is limited to where he sits at the right hand of the Father. But by the Holy Spirit, the whole person of Christ, his body and blood are given to us in communion. Right? There's no transformation of the elements. It's totally unnecessary because if Jesus is not bound to heaven because he can be everywhere with us by the Holy Spirit, right, then his body being limited is, is no hindrance. Right. Um, so I would say communion is a communication of Christ to the Christian rather than a transformation of the elements. Okay. Right? Christ's body and blood are given, as he says, he is present, his whole person, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, uh, maybe you don't, but some Christians say, uh, uh, lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord in the service. And most of the time it's done either at the beginning because of a certain view of worship, but certainly by the time they're about to do communion. So why would you have to lift up your hearts to the Lord if, you know, his body is just immediately there, right? I'm not limiting the presence of Christ, but I'm talking about the way that he's present. And that was the distinction between the Lutherans and the Reformed and what split the Reformation so early on. Why Luther, if you read about him, he's, he's known for saying that thing, is means is. This is my body. Mm-hmm. And the Reformed were accused because they wanted to say, well, how? Because the Catholics say one way how. And we know that's wrong because of Scripture and reason. And that was part of their argument. So baptism is a sacrament of initiation. The Lord's Supper is a sacrament of nourishment, where we truly receive and are fed. That's why it's food, right? We're, we're fed the body and blood of Christ. Uh, some have said something like, in uh, the Lord's Supper, you don't receive a better Christ, but you receive more of him. Okay. Um, a bit like the burning bush with Moses, mm-hmm. where God is present everywhere, but he's immediately present in the burning bush, right? He made himself known more fully, if if you want to say that, in the burning bush in Exodus 3. You could talk about the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19 and Psalm 23, the table prepared in the midst of of the enemies, Uh, but yeah. Okay, cool. All right, well, I'll I'll let Michael ask the next two questions and then I'll take the last two. All righty. So, do you think religion and science are at odds, especially given the modern climate that we live in? No. (laughs) We've been talking about this the whole show, basically. This is is kind of just um, a trick question for fundamentalists, really. Right. But, uh, yeah, we we talked about in our Origins of Life in the Universe uh, episode, and we were kind of like basically deciding like you don't need to dogmatize certain readings of Genesis and make that a requirement for salvation because there are different views out there and that's not the only that's not even really relevant honestly yeah I mean if you know if you want to talk about that I think evolution narrowly considered right that we that our first parents were not Adam and Eve I think that's out of the scope of, of Christianity but I don't think that Christians who don't believe in a six-day, 24-hour creation are unbelievers, right? Augustine didn't even hold that view. Yeah. Right? And he is the saint of saints, if there is one. Um, the Christian of Christians, if 
more Protestant listeners are comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he held to something more like an instantaneous creation that God spoke, everything was, and this is how he described it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I think I'm getting that right. Um, but I know he didn't hold to a six-day, 24-hour creation view. Um, I think that's a fairly modern kind of reading of it with, with our that's, yeah, scientific lens That's debatable. Um, I, I think what, what I've come across is not that uh, they wouldn't have, or excuse me, not that they would have totally disagreed with us if we were talking to a fourth century Christian, you know, about what does the day mean in uh, Genesis. Um, I think it was more of a given for them, right, that they probably did just assume day means day. Right. But that I, it's hard to say that, you know, uh, God took 24 hours to do what he did on each day because he, he spoke it. So maybe he laid it out where it was a process that took 12 hours. I, I don't know. Yeah. But I believe in creation ex nihilo yeah. that God did it over six days and that, you know, the way the Bible uses day is, is pretty consistent. So, yeah. I mean, that, that is my view that it is six 24-hour creation, but it's not like... The age a, of the earth is not necessarily... Is, are, would you would you say that the Bible teaches 6,000 or that the Bible doesn't say how old the earth is and you're just reading that into it? or, or? If you uh, follow a very straightforward reading of Scripture and trace out the genealogies and add up all the years, then you do get something around 6,000 okay. years. And I'm comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. But I haven't looked into it enough to where I would say, wow, that's really wonky. Or, wow, that's, you know, really necessary kind of, to yeah, you're kind of open to for yeah. flexing on that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the big thing for me is Adam and Eve were our first parents. There were no men or women before them. Okay. And all men and women descend from them. Right. So that's, yeah. I think that also kind of extends into, well, I guess we were, we were kind of talking about fundamentalist churches earlier. Um a lot of a lot of Christians generally have a well the more fundamentalist brand would have a kind of an issue with a lot of things that science is positing mm-hmm. because of evolution and they think that because evolution is not at all compatible with Genesis that therefore um, all science sure. is thrown out except for when you need to go to the doctor um, right, yeah. or when you want to go check the weather yeah. or when it fits your mm-hmm. you know so and as the agnostic, that's always kind of a hilarious viewpoint because all things, if you are a Christian, all things are capable and done through God. So that yeah. meteorologist, if he gets it right, yeah. kind of... It's a blessing from God, right? Yeah, I mean, and, we, we speak of this idea of uh, common grace, right? That God enables even unbelievers not just to know things, but to do them well. Like, you don't have to be a Christian mechanic to work on my truck, right? I just want you to be a good mechanic. Yeah. Right? Same thing. I think you said a urologist or whatever. Um, that that same idea is, is in play. And uh, that, I mean, I, I would want to say that, obviously, science that contradicts the Bible, I would say, is wrong. Mm-hmm. But I have no issue with science, right? Right. It's, it's just like uh, you have a de- definition of science and you have a definition of theology, right? There are going to be more or less pure versions of both of those and the more pure they are the more they align with how god has made the world and how god has revealed himself in scripture 
I think it, it kind of just like science is trying to do one thing, theology is trying to do another thing. They're not necessarily against each other. They're just right. describing different things in right. different ways. And at one point, they were very well tied into each other due mm-hmm. to the hierarchy of countries. Yeah. And they don't have to exist as these separate entities fighting against each other through like the anti-intellectual movements and then with the militant atheist movement of using science to describe and prove everything. Yeah, Yeah, so I mean from the Christian perspective, science and um, religion or theology have the same goal the honor of God right? but also the faithful replication of what God has revealed Um, more atheistic views of science don't care about that right? right they are in the pursuit of building man up and sometimes building something like a utopia like uh, removing everything that could possibly be a hindrance to anybody but what they really mean by anybody is the person that they like or pays them the most at that moment yeah. right or their own personal desires like they don't really care if uh you know their close family members have anything good especially if their close family members don't affirm something like uh, LGBT, right? You know, they, they totally neglect their family. And, and uh, not all of them, of course. I'm just broad brush, right? right. Just, yeah. just that generic idea. But it's that inconsistency of that atheistic worldview. And it, I'm not saying Christians can't be prone to it because we certainly can. Right. Yeah. But this idea that, like, I'm not doing this in service to a higher power or God himself for the Christian, but that I'm doing what I feel is best. That's unchristian to think that way, to do what you feel is best. Now, if what you feel is best is scriptural, great, wonderful coincidence, yeah. right? But we are to be informed by scripture and by nature, mm-hmm. right? Natural theology, natural religion, that God has given us the way some of the reformers and ancient Christians spoke, God gave us two books, scripture and nature. Obviously, one's clearer than the other and informs the other, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that you have to read the Bible to go tell me what kind of tree that is outside. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So. All right. In your opinion, how should Christians interact with politics? And I think that kind of somewhat plays off of the last question mm-hmm. with the modern climate and everything yeah. we're in today. We we've dabbled. Uh, we've skirted around this topic with a lot of the things we've covered in the past and we may go into some things uh, in the future but uh, yeah just as as kind of what would be your view on that because I know some people are like if you're a Christian you absolutely need to be involved in politics and others are like no stay out of it Uh, so I guess like what is the appropriate amount of involvement yeah I mean I think it's going to depend on the individual person like if you're not gifted and in the know on those things, then you really shouldn't be super involved. You should seek to know more things though, and learn about politics because as we're learning right now, the decisions of politics affect us, right? For years, growing up in the world that we grew up in, even like the difference between a Democrat and Republican, in some ways was you know uh, profound, but not quite the way it is now. Right, where you do have immediate implications from one party to the next. Now, um, I hate it. I hate it when, you know, uh, Christians from the left punch to the right. 
right? They only pick on people who are more conservative than them. So, like, I voted for Joe Biden because he's not as mean as Donald Trump. What, and how do you look at their policies, right? Don't just disregard the man or the woman if she's running, right? Because you have to do that at some level, right? right? You have to, right? Um, Hopefully, some people right. don't. Because at the end of the day, most of them are still pretty terrible people. Right? Yeah. The oh, I, I would not deny that about any person that I've learned more than five minutes about that served as a, a president or even a governor in a lot of cases and, and mayors. Uh, they often get where they are by corruption and by, you know, playing people, if you will, mm-hmm. or knowing which uh, butts to kiss. Right? Let's call it that. Right. Um, but. Just in general, like the things that uh, the more conservative politics are known for do historically line up with what Christians stand for, right? That's undeniable. And I I think to say otherwise is really foolish and, and quite frankly, modern, right? To say that, you know, the Democratic Party uh, loves uh, the uh, least of these greater than the Republican Party, well, that's arguable. But they also continue to affirm and uh, promote the requirement of making abortion as available as possible, right? And that's just crazy. Like, you, you don't have to be a very mature Christian to see that as wrong. Right. right? And that, yeah. that is a huge issue for us in our country. Mm-hmm. Like, you look at the availability of, of abortion and just the number of it. It's insane. And heinous. And part of the reason our country, I'm convinced, is in the mess we're in is because of our tolerance of abortion. Now, what do we do about that? I don't know. Right? Certain people are doing certain things at the local level to, to begin working on that. And, and I've got several friends who are involved in, like, uh, personhood of South Carolina movements. Mm-hmm. And, you know, luckily our, our current governor and the past one uh, have been not anti-abortion as I think they should be, <clears throat> but they've been against at least certain kinds rather than totally open to it and affirming it as a reproductive right. Uh, But as far as, let me get back to this thing, (laughs) Christians interacting with politics, uh, I think we should uh, because I'll give you just a principle. God judges nations as nations. Nations are governed uh, through politics, if you will. Mm -hmm. That, That is a reflection of our nation. I mean, it's no coincidence that our country uh, is the way it is and the church is the way it is today, right? And it, which really leads you into the next question. Uh, but, you know, the church is going to reflect the country rather than vice versa. It's normally that the church is driving what uh, a country will look like. If the church is conservative, that doesn't mean the church is Republican per se. It's just historical um, happenstance or coincidence, whatever you want to use, that right now the Republicans stand for things that are outwardly, I would argue, more Christian than the big things that the Democrats stand for. Now, you go back to the Civil War, it was the other way around. Mm-hmm. Right? That period of history, the Democrats were the Southern conservatives, whereas the Republicans were the Northern um, progressives if you want to call them that and now it's totally the other way around yeah right Uh, right. but i do think christians should interact with politics it's going to depend on each person 
<clears throat> I, th- I think, and one of the things we pray for in our congregation a lot is for our uh, young men uh, to grow up to be Christian politicians, to have influence and those kinds of things, because I, I think that's the only way we're going to see change ever start to happen in our country from, gotcha. from that level. So, yeah, that's a good, good response. Yeah. One more thing about <clears throat> the Christianity and, and uh, politics is um, Christians get um, maybe some Christians, maybe not, but uh, we often get uh, the uh, response to us where we should, you know, one Christian will be pro-life, as all Christians should be, uh, but they'll say something like, abortion should be outlawed totally. <clears throat> and then you bring up the thing about education, you bring up the thing about uh, uh, resources that people need to prevent these unwanted pregnancies, whatever you want to call them. Uh, th- those are worthy discussions to have. What I think we at least need to begin to be able to do is not uh, so much to get into the weeds of policy, because that is the work of politics, but to get into principles that we can all affirm together and move the ball down the field in that way. So I, I think in principle, every Christian should be absolutely opposed to abortion because abortion is murder, right? Now, the policies by which we enact that, it could be immediate. I think that would be great. And the long-term harm, if there is any, would be totally uh, minuscule compared to trying to roll out an educational plan for a country to where people will finally get informed and it'll just click on, ah, yes, this is bad. I should not do this, right? Most of the time, people don't come to those kinds of conclusions. If you ever raise a child, you will see that discipline very often uh, does not need to be gradual and progressive discipline broadly considered like instruction and all those things right. sometimes it has to be immediate and the fallout from that would be much less in my opinion than if you tried to roll out this plan because let's say you roll out the plan and it, it doesn't work right if you make it illegal it works immediately then right. the fallout is dealing with crime right mm-hmm. so anyway yeah gotcha um so kind of uh another episode we we recorded recently uh, at the time of this interview it's actually coming out monday um it's called the problem or um where christians in america have gone wrong Mm. um what is one general thing that you think christians in america should work on i could say so many things we did Um, we had like 15 things yeah the one i one that i think is very important right now and that i'm very passionate about is the home and the role of the husband, the wife, the children, the father, the mother, those kinds of things, um, taking a more uh, taking a return to scripture, and a departure from culture on that. Um, I think our views on contraception, by and large, are horrendous. Um, based on, you know, f- there's several books been released in the last few years that that show that contraception, not just by the Roman Catholic Church, but even by Protestants, was viewed as sinful. Um, Today, it's a given, right? Um, Small families are a given. I don't know if you've seen the news, but how low the birth rate is in our society, even among, uh, you know, families who have larger incomes Mm -hmm. that shouldn't have that excuse kind of thing. I don't think it's a legitimate excuse anyway, but the focus on the home, the building it up in a biblical and natural way, and having more children. Like, 
because our society is slowly being destroyed. And one of the ways to build a society is to have bigger families. You don't believe me? Ask the Muslims. Oh, yeah. They like to tell how uh, we're the fastest growing religion in the world. Well, you're having a lot of kids. Right. Yeah. And Christians have historically done, not just Christians, but people have historically done that. And they recognize it. Now, we live in an age where the Muslims are smarter than Christians on that. And it's sad to say. But it's true. We need to have more children. And, you know, uh, not, not many things make me more sad than young couples telling me they don't want any children. Like, what if your parents would have taken that perspective? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you'd have been none the wiser. But, like, you think God just provided marriage? Granted, you believe that. Uh, just so you could uh, have intimacy with one person for the rest of your life? That's it? That's all? Okay. Right? So... Yeah, families, the home, uh, have children, stop taking the pill, that kind of stuff. Gotcha. That's broad brush. There's yeah. going to be exceptions. Yeah. Some people can't have kids. Some people uh, are single and should not have kids. <laughs> right? So there's exceptions, but broad brush, generally speaking, Christians need to have bigger families and devote themselves to having healthy homes. Gotcha. That's an interesting response because it was definitely different from the last one we got. The last one, basically, uh, Pastor Mark mentioned, basically the, the, the biggest thing that we talked about, um, he kind of agreed with us, is like Christians themselves need to work on themselves so that they're better examples for other people, which I'm not saying that that's not an issue, but um, yeah, it's just a different answer. We haven't gotten that one. Yeah, and I, I think, though, that because of the role of the family in scripture and history that it would have those effects yeah i was about to say i can see how they both kind of tie it kind of tie in because if you have a good foundation for life to begin mm-hmm. you have a better chance of the house holding yeah. up yeah right. and lack of better terms yeah what's the first thing god made for men or with men marriage yeah right men and women obviously using that term Traditionally, not to say homosexuality was in the garden, but just that humanity, right? The very first gift God gave them once he made Adam, you know, shortly thereafter, he gave him Eve. He mm-hmm. gave him marriage. Like marriage existed before sin existed. Yeah. Right? Pretty certain that was his uh, first command to humans was be fruitful and multiply. Yeah. Yeah. So. Some people take that more seriously than others. But, uh, right, yeah. I mean, you could appeal to direct scriptural uh, revelation and, and show that, you know, God, it's not just a suggestion. It's a command. And to uh, refuse it, if you disobey a command, logically, what is that? A sin. I'm going to guess that's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? So, again, there, there are going to be different ways that works out for different people. Right? It doesn't mean that uh, you know you need to de- neglect all medical supervision and impregnate your wife as soon as she can be impregnated every single time she can be impregnated. But that if your practice is avoiding having children, that's a sin right? because of the way the Bible lays it out. And it's also bad for our society. And you should care about our society because your children are going to live in it. 
Or you're going to live in it if you don't want to have children. Mm-hmm. Or your family's going to live in it. Your nieces and nephews, if your siblings have children. I mean, it's just... Right. We, so, in one way, you could say that the biggest problem with American Christianity is individualism. Right? Just this utter focus on the self. Right? But it, it's all connected. But yeah. I, I, gotcha. would, I would start with that creation ordinance, the family. Okay, marriage. cool. All right. Well, uh, as we're wrapping up, for anyone who is in the area or curious, what would be the process to become a member of your church? Yeah. Thank you for this question. Um, thank you for all the questions. But yeah. uh, if you are a uh, member of a um, Christian church already, uh, you would just make a profession of faith and you meet with the elders. Remember we talked about the elders earlier this session. Mm-hmm. You would meet with them and explain how you came to know the Lord, uh, answer a few basic questions to show that you understand Christianity and are coming here to, to worship the Lord and be a part of this community. And then we would vote to receive you. I've never been a part of a vote where we didn't receive somebody. Because um, normally if you're going to appear before the elders, you got to have a little bit of courage, right, and clarity and, and certainty and all those things. So you make a profession of faith. You're received by the elders. And if you're coming from a church that's not like ours, We'll often do a membership class mm-hmm. where I'll take, depending on the person, anywhere from three hours one afternoon to five or six weeks in Sunday school, those kinds of things to work you through um, what it means to be a member here because you have to take membership vows. And uh, there's five of those. And they the first three are basically showing that you understand Christianity. And the last two are more or less showing uh, that you understand uh, something of how our church is governed and how it works rather than you know going from a, a Methodist church to a Presbyterian is more than changing your mailing address for the church right it's a difference right. in doctrine it's a difference in government and we want you to understand that so okay what if somebody's coming from a non-religious background uh, yeah so we would um, definitely require membership class uh, and it would probably be a little more thorough right just to make sure. Uh, that they understood what was going on. Um, We would uh, not uh, prohibit anybody with a credible profession of faith from becoming a member of our church. Okay. And what that basically means is you cannot outwardly be living in something that the Bible condemns. Gotcha. Right. So. Okay. All right. Well, I think that that about wraps it up. Do you have any other, anything else? No, that's, I think that wraps it up nicely. All right, cool. Thank you for your yeah. your time. Glad uh, to I do think it. Your answers were very thorough, very so. detailed, and very informative for someone who might not have a grasp of the differences between some. Yeah. You very well worded and fleshed things out. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm glad to do it. It's a joy to me. I'm glad to do it for oh, Cool. Thank you. Um, so, thank you guys so much for listening to uh, Facing the Gates today. Uh, Get, follow us on social media, Facing the Gates, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And come to our church. Come come to our church if Grace if you're Presbyterian around. Church, yeah, 49 Varden Drive in Aiken. Yeah, if you're around the uh, Aiken, South Carolina area, come visit uh, Grace Presbyterian. We'll be doing that tomorrow, and you'll be hearing our thoughts next week. And, um, yeah, that's about it. It's yeah, been it's real. been real. It's been fun. It's been real fun. And uh, see you guys next week.